because I'd look at myself in the mirror and I'd look normal. <laughs> but I'd know that behind it all, it was just, I was gone. Welcome back to the Understanding Men podcast, which is basically two guys talking about the things that men could, but don't speak about anywhere near enough. I'm Luke Sutton, and I'm once again here with my great friend, Fraser Franks. And I'd like to introduce you to our guest today, Gab Stone. During the height of the excitement of the London 2012 Olympics, Gab was arguably one of the most successful sports agents in the UK, managing multiple gold medal winners. Yet five years later, Gab was sentenced to 18 months in jail after admitting fraud for losing over £40,000 of Olympic gold medalist Greg Rutherford's money due to a gambling addiction. Gab has never spoken publicly about his story, from the heights of success in the sports industry to the suffocating lows of gambling addiction, jail, and then a rise back through recovery. So this is a super special podcast for us. Welcome, Gab. Thanks. Thank you very much. Uh, what an intro. I don't really know what to say. <laughs> <laughs> Look, what we're going to do for today's podcast is, um, you know, I want to go through Gab's story. What you'll find out listening to this is Gab's story and my part in it are kind of intertwined. So it's not like Gab and I are complete strangers to each other, just to, you know, full disclosure here. Let's start, Gab, with how you got into the sports industry. So explain, like, how did you get into the agency stuff? When did it start? Give us that background. Yeah, I mean, I um, probably like any young sports enthusiast was convinced that I was going to be a professional football player up until the age of, I don't know, 14, 15, at which point I realised that I wasn't good enough. Well, I wasn't wasn't even anywhere near, by the way. I just wanted to do what any young, young football fan wanted to do. But I met a, a relative who mum introduced me to who was a, uh, and is a, a very successful football agent and I remember going around to his house and he had a zoo in the front garden and he had players' shirts all across the walls. And that was my first ever memory of thinking, that's what I want to do with my life. Just the idea of, of working close to the sport or, or any sport really, but especially because of, I was so into football and, and seeing, seeing sort of <laughs> the fruits of his labour, but just how cool it was for him to be so involved with the sport. That was it. And from that point on, I was like, I'm going to do what I need to do to be him. I think I was, yeah, I was even maybe pre-GCSE stage. So I was like, chose PGCSE and then business studies A-level and PA-level. Applied to go to Loughborough because it was, I guess, the most renowned sports university in the country to do sports science with management. Um, that was all geared towards ultimately becoming a sports agent because, yeah, I, I set my sights quite early that that was the route for me, really. And and then what was your your kind of first step in how did you get into into the industry no need to mention any names but the said uh, relative i was and now i know how annoying i must have been <laughs> just bugging him trying to trying to get an opportunity with him but it just wasn't the right time and i'd finished i graduated at loughborough i'd done a year sabbatical there as the president of the students union which set me up well for running an organization and hiring and firing and managing budgets and whatever else so that was a good sort of leading into industry yeah, I was waiting and waiting on an opportunity with him and it wasn't quite coming. I'd worked at a sports, sort of an independent sports PR company based up in Leicester, who uh, I'd been introduced to through my Loughborough links and done a little bit in and around the football space. But really, I was waiting to get back down to London. I was conscious that it was as much as who, who you knew as it was finding opportunity. So I thought he was my route in. And, and I remember it because I literally had my latest because it was like, I'm busy, call me in four weeks type thing. And then I called him five weeks and he was like, I really want to help you out, but there's no opportunity now. And I, I literally lay down on the bed like, oh God. And then I sat back up and I went back on the sports recruitment website, which I'd scoured relentlessly every day. And it just said sports agent London, like apply here. And there was an opportunity to go and work with Linford Christie, at his agency. And it's funny now because Linford and... And his gang and everyone in around him at the time of athletics was such a part of my upbringing as a sports fan. 
But now with the younger generation, I have to be like, you do know who Linford Christie is, right? <laughs> and there's this opportunity to go and, and work with Linford's agency predominantly in, in track and field athletics. So I came down to London. Uh, in my first interview, I was interviewed by Darren Campbell. Yeah, and then I came down for another interview a week later, I think, which was Linford as well. And for me, that was like, that's unbelievable, you know, to be in and amongst these people. And that was it. It wasn't what I thought I was going to head towards. I wanted to get into football, but I was just a sports fan. So to have that opportunity, I just bit their hand off. And that's where it started, basically. And then sort of jump it forward. You're kind of, I guess your next big moment in your career would have been the Beijing Olympics, right? Lewis Smith and his moment in history. And then you and him coming together and just talk us through that. So it, it was a year, I think it was just only a year after I'd, I don't know, I have to go back and, and jog my memory, but I'd been there a, couple, a year or two. And I think we went out to the Beijing Olympics to represent athletes that we had competing out there. So I looked after Christina Hurugu, who won the gold medal in the 400 meters that year, Christian Malcolm, Nathan Douglas, Chris Tomlinson, various others. And me and a colleague headed out to Beijing as memory serves me, I think the, the night that we got there was we went to meet up with, so then obviously became friends with clients of the agency, went to meet up with Darren Campbell, who was on a night out with Chris Boardman, and we spent the evening with them. And that was the first night. And obviously loads of English, British people were coming up to us to chat to them. And then we got chatting to people. So we kept some of their contact details. The next night was the 100 meter final when Bolt broke the record, I guess, or one of the many times that he broke the 100 record and won gold. We'd gone to the stadium and then headed back to uh, our hotel. And I was like, I really want to go out. And it was very late at night. My colleague was jet lagged, but I was, I just fancied the night, <laughs> the night out. So I, I tried to make my way to this, to this club in Beijing, where I'd then made back contact to these people we'd met the night before. By the time I got there, because all of the all of the taxi drivers in Beijing at the time had come from all over China just to work the Olympics. So there was me with obviously no Mandarin and, and then with no English and trying to explain to them where a club was that I didn't know where it was. meant that I got there about an hour and a half later. And at the time I got there, I couldn't get in. So I was calling these people who I'd made contact with the night before. And then there was a babble of English people behind me. And, and it turned out there were some people from Amiga who uh, were sponsors of the games. And we'd actually had an arrangement to meet with them through a contact the next day. So I got chatting with them. And then I'd actually read about Lewis on the flight on the way over in BA High Life magazine. Never heard of him before. Like, obviously, uh, many people hadn't. And he was just cited as a as a young British Olympic hopeful. And obviously at that time as well, there was no gymnast really who'd achieved. I mean, he was the first British male gymnast to win the medal in, Olympic medal in a hundred years in 2008. You know, they weren't talked about in the way that other athletes were. So I'd seen this feature about him in BA High Life magazine, hadn't thought much about it. When we got to the games, I'd heard that this gymnast had won a medal. And then here we are at 2 a.m. outside a club in Beijing and I'm talking to these people from Amiga and I hear this guy behind me going, oh, yeah, I'm a gymnast and I won a medal yesterday and whatever. And I was like, and I've never signed anyone to the agency as well. So I was only obviously managing the existing clients. And I was like, I've got to chat to that guy. Made a beeline for him. Oh, have you got an agent? And uh, <laughs> I didn't really know what I was, what I was doing, but um, didn't leave him alone all night. And here we are sort of yeah, 16 years later. And uh, we are indelibly attached to each other, like a labor of love. And we've got photos from, from I think, probably five, six, seven o'clock the next morning on this rooftop bar because we ended up finding a bar around the corner and then another bar. And yeah, we, we all linked up together, all the English people there. And so me and him were together throughout the night that night. Yeah, like some beautiful romance. Here we are 16 years later and, and I still look after him. So I was going to skip forward to London 2012, really. Because obviously Lewis made Olympic history in a big, big way at Beijing, but start of you two working together. And then eventually those four years in between, the start of you building your own management company and getting to London 2012 and being at the right at the top of your game, I would say. And, and how did that feel, that London Olympics? You know, multiple gold medal candidates. You were still 
dare I say, an, an agency uh, speak, an independent. You know, you weren't a big agency as such. Yeah. You were still not quite a one-man band, but a smaller agency. How did it feel at that time when you were right at the top? It was unbelievable. I mean, I think, so yeah, I started the agency in 2009, I think, three years ahead of the games. And I had Lewis. Initially, it was more like I wanted to do, make sure I was doing him justice by ensuring that I was building something around him so that the opportunity that lay ahead for him in the lead up to 2012 could be maximized. And I obviously loved the idea of working with up and coming 2012 hopefuls. I literally like went on Google and Googled all the Olympic sports and did my research on who, who looked to be like the next big thing in those sports, but also was looking at their marketability, I guess, across the board rather than just their achievements. Like what I, what I loved about Lewis from the outset was that he just had something about him. You know, it was an exciting concept to represent someone like him with the left field thing that he was a gymnast as opposed to, you know, maybe a track and field athlete or whatever else. So I started to build this group of, of young, young Olympic hopefuls. And also I wanted them to win medals because I got to know them and they were great people. But it was also cool to have the opportunity to build something around the concept of Olympic hopefuls. It was what they represented in that lead up to mm. the Games, not just what medals they might win. It was a great ride. And that led me to yeah 2012, where I had 22 athletes competing and I think 13 medal winners. It was unbelievable. I think anyone who was in, in London around that time will speak of how special it was. There was just something about being around. I mean, I've, I've, I'm born and bred in London. Uh, you know, I've grown up in London, lived here all my life, so experienced all sorts. But to be there uh, around that time was amazing anyway, even if, you know, mm. seeing all the games helpers on the tubes and everyone wanted to be friendly with each other and talk to each other and whatever else. And then always with the Olympics, I think, the general public really get behind everything that's going on. But especially at that time, it was epic. And so for me, I didn't really know what I was doing. I was just waking up every morning, getting to Stratford, going and meeting with sponsors or talking to the media or catching up with athletes. And so I'd get up early in the morning, go straight over to the, to the Olympic Park. But to be, to be a part of it and, and be that close to it, I think it's, it's hard, isn't it? Because it's what you work for and then you don't necessarily check in with yourself and be like, oh, I'm right in it now. I'm right in where I mm. want to be, which is to be, you know, so such a central part of, of these athletes and their lives and their successes and, and their, you know, failures as well, because obviously not all the ones who I represented won medals at the Games, but it was so exciting. It was so exciting. Mm. But certainly in the case of Lewis, it was, you know, we built towards that for, especially that four years and longer. So it was great. I think he was, in terms of the number of sponsors, he was the most sponsored Team GB athletes. He, he had 10 sort of headline sponsors, but the pressure that that brought was, was unbelievable. We saw it in, come out in his performances as he you know, shed tears, literally, as he, was, as he came off the pommel horse, thankfully, on two feet. And for me, I was just an absolute wreck. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if you don't mind me going there now, let, let's talk about gambling and when it started for you. And, it, you know, I can speak as someone who knows the sports industry well, where you got to in 2012 in that position, essentially mm. sort of self-made position is quite phenomenal. But alongside this, mm. clearly some a gambling addiction or gambling started. When, when was the first time it started for you? And when had it become a problem at that point in 2012? Yeah, I mean... Depends how far you want to go back, really. And obviously, I've done a lot of this type of thinking and understanding. And you can go back to, you know, memories of as a child, going to the, the news agent on the way into, into primary school. And for whatever reason, the, the guy there would just sell us these scratch cards that surely he wasn't supposed to sell us. My mates would buy one, another mate would buy two, and I'd buy like 25 of them. So when I think back to it, that's always what I think of my earliest memory of maybe some form of out of control, slightly erratic behavior. Not, not that I ever saw any mathematical sense in buying loads of scratch cards. You know, I think back to then. And then I guess when it started to generate more was throughout college when I started to play poker with mates, which I loved, by the way, like the social side of it, absolutely loved it. But there was obviously something about the financial element of it and the gambling element of it, which 
hooked me right in. If someone was looking at it from the outside at that point, they would no doubt would have been like, yeah, that guy's a bit different to the rest or probably got a problem or could have a problem in the future. And that went on to my gap year that I took before university where I actually lived in Israel for a year. And again, there was a lot of gambling, social gambling that happened then. And and I remember, especially during that period, there was a lot of playing through the night and into the morning. And I remember always being the one who was sort of pushing for for the late nights and early mornings with it. I guess where it really started to become a problem then was when I went to university because very early on, I was introduced into the world of, of online gambling. And I'll never forget someone who I was in halls with showed me his account and and whatever else. And I, I think it was this concoction of being able to access it so quickly and easily. And this was still like bordering dial-up internet days. We weren't in, in the sure. in the stage where we are now, but so it wasn't seamless. But the fact that I was able to access it at my fingertips, I had my own room for the first time in my, as in like, you know, lock and key, my own room in halls at university and my supposed freedom. You know, I think all of those things combined just hooked me straight away. I also had access to money that, you know, I hadn't had access to before in terms of whether it be money that I worked for or given money by my parents to to get me through university times. So all of those things combined just made it a problem, basically. And and I and I battled with it throughout university. If I just use 2012 as a, a signpost, really, at, at that moment, was it a, a dark secret for you? Did you, looking back now, go, this is... In a, in a place that's not healthy or did you just openly gamble at that time within myself did i did i say this isn't very good you need to not be doing it do you mean yeah and, and to, to people around you you know friends and family did you quietly just online gamble and not tell anyone about it or did you just did you just hit the casinos and kind of it was open i mean certainly friends and family i, I hid whatever i could well, certainly family, I hid wherever I could. In terms of like friends I was around at university, I think it would have been difficult for them to not spot some of my behaviours. So the problem is, is that, you know, it becomes erratic. So we had fruit machines, obviously all around the student, around the students' union, around the um, campus. And there was this one fruit machine in, in, the near, in the nearest bar, the one that we hung out at most on the campus. And I went online and I found out that there were emptiers which were like codes. It would be crazy stuff. Like if it, like you have to get the two sevens here and the one seven here, and then you press this button and then it spins and then you don't touch anything and whatever. And then the machine would just empty every single coin that it had in the machine. And there were a couple of different machines that had different empties and you would find these people online on certain message boards and you would pay them to give you these unlockers or emptiers so i'd be at, on a night out you know at university and like people would be all behind me in time and i'd be like zoned into this machine and just these coins were just <laughs> falling out and i'd be <laughs> filling my pockets with 200 300 pounds of pound coins obviously the biggest problem being that, is that i couldn't stop there it, it, i was a gambler i wasn't someone who was good at finding out codes for machines i was a gambler so as mm. much as i made on the on the machine that I could make on I'd lose on the next one. There was a, a risk element of like, you, it has to be full, obviously, of coins. And you could spot like the signs if it wasn't, but I wouldn't. I would just keep plowing my money in. Because the weird thing was that meanwhile, I was building myself in the social scene at the university. I was the, the social secretary of the hall and then I became the chair of social secretaries and that gave me the platform to end up campaigning to be the president of the Students' Union. So it was all going on at the same time. <laughs> But like when you're talking through the the emptier dynamic, it did, did at that time, and I'm guessing I'm not the answer might not be a binary one here. But what was the bigger buzz for you? Was it the the gamble of this might not or might not work, mm. or was it the winning of money? That's what's always intrigued me about gambling addiction is like that moment where all the money comes down and you found out the code, you know, the the mix of it. Did that make you go, yeah, I want to do that again? Or did you actually, is it the the kind of unknown of whether you're going to win or lose that keeps bringing you back? Yeah, it's a hard one to answer. I mean, I, I guess it's different for different gamblers, obviously. 
from memory, my problem was always the loss. <laughs> so there would always be a lot. I don't, there would always be something that hooked me in, whether it be, yeah, I fancy that a bit. And from the times when, I've, when I'd ended up falling back into it, I remember quite vividly that point where it's been like, yeah, I fancy that. And it's never been like, I've got to gamble. It's just been a thing. Like, and, and I'm talking about episodes in my life where I ended up falling back into it. And I remember one time it was because a mate, a colleague of mine had a couple of bets on, on the Euros. And I thought, I fancy that bet. You know, and that snowballed into an absolute catastrophe. Another time I was just in the casino with someone and I was like, yeah, I haven't gambled in a while. I'll have a, a bet. And it was always the loss for me. I've got a really mathematical brain and I've always been very fixated on figures. And I think whenever I started to lose, it was the chase. Like I very, very soon after didn't want to be gambling. It wasn't like I didn't want to gamble because I loved gambling. I wanted to gamble because I wanted to get my money back. Mm. Yeah. And so it was never something major that would hook me in. But it was always the chase that kept me in it and that got me into all of the troubles that I ended up facing, to be honest with you. And I, and I think that's probably different for different gamblers. Mm. And did you, there were times when you tried to stop, right? Where you went, I can't do mm. this. Is, this is, I'm, I'm getting into trouble here. What was the, the most vivid memory of you going, you know, shit, I'm in a lot of trouble here. This needs to stop right now. Do you, do you have a, a particular memory of that? Yeah, when I ran out of money. <laughs> <laughs> like that's no, but I, I mean, there must have been a few times. Unfortunately, like, there must joke, have been a few but, times. Yeah, that, we joke, but the problem is, is that I, I, I mean it at the same time because I'd be like, I'm fucked. I've got nothing. I've this all over. But if you gave me two hundred pounds at that point and went go again, then it would be like coming up from underwater and taking a massive gasp of oxygen. Like it was oxygen, like the actual money at that point was oxygen. And I'd be like, I'm in my debts, I'm fucked, I don't know what I'm going to do. And if you went like, here's some money, I'd be like, I can build it back now. Mm. Mm. I'm going to build it back and it's, I'm going to fix all of the problems. And so unfortunately, on many of those occasions, like, yeah, I mean, I knew that there was this absolute catastrophic mess around me. But, you know, you 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 focus on the good the good days, as in the days when you won loads of money and you'd be like, well, mm. I'm going to have a load of them and everything's going to be okay. And no one's going to know the thing and I don't have to tell anyone I'm going to fix this, 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 and this. And so unfortunately, that's often the case, I find. And also with other gamblers I speak to and people I meet, because also I ended up losing a lot of money. But a lot of gamblers who maybe haven't lost as much, if they're still unwell and in that space, they will try and convince you that if they had loads of money, it wouldn't be a problem mm. because it's the money that's the problem. If I got that much, then I'd be fine. But it, obviously it's not, it's just, especially when it comes to it being online so much, is it's just, it's just figures on a screen and the amount of money you've got is just more zeros. Yeah. I, I remember you telling me, I'm going to get the details wrong, but I remember you telling me you went through a period of time where you stopped and then we don't have to mention the company, but it did a, a mm. gambling company sent you an iPad, didn't they, through the post? Mm. Is that is it just is that have I got that right? Yeah, that's right. So I, I stopped. I sort of gone through bouts in my life when I'd started and I stopped and I started and I stopped, and then I came clean to my parents for the first time. And this was these are I see the episodes is when I end up coming clean to my family. And in fact, I think the first time was honestly it might have been forty eight hours before I flew to Beijing. Because I remember going there without a penny to my name. And my parents unbelievably supported me through that and got me on the plane, I guess. And that was the first time I came clean to them and we came up with a, a plan and whatever else. So I didn't gamble between 2008 and I think to 2010. I think I fell back into it in 2010. Then I didn't gamble between 2010 and 2013. And that's kind of in line with the trajectory of the business London 2012 and everything that happened. Yeah, I fell back into it in, I think it was around February, literally like not, not long after the Olympics. And then I got Lewis onto Strictly and we had all of that, you know, incredible fanfare. And he, he won Strictly in, in the uh, Christmas of 2012. 
and I fell back into it in 2013. That was very, very bad. And that was the big major episode where I lost huge amounts of money. And then I had to come clean, obviously, to my parents again. And then they had to involve other people to create a rescue plan. And I had the agency at the time. So it was obviously, you know, there was money that was coming in that was in, in way more than what personally, you know, I, I, I had. And that caused all sorts of problems. And then, yeah, I stopped. And I stopped for, I think, 12 to 14 months. And yeah, I must have been on some form of system somewhere as a, as a high roller for want of a better word, because the amount of money that I spent and well, I know that's what happened basically. I mean, I can mention names or I can't in terms of betting companies. I don't really mind. I was contacted by a, an individual from Betway. I think I, I used to gamble on uh, Labrooks a lot. That's where I spent most of my money and I was contacted by this individual and they would have bought my details. Ultimately, I would imagine from whether it be Labrooks or one of the other companies. And he tried to call me and said that he wanted to introduce himself to me. And I said, I wasn't interested. And then he turned up to my office one day with an iPad and 3000 pounds in a betting account. And I told him I didn't want it, but he turned up anyway. I wasn't even there and he just left it there, just left it there. And so that, that one time then I mentioned about my colleague was betting on the euros and I was like, fancy that and obviously I've been through all of this rescue plan and everything with my parents and all the therapy and whatever else so I didn't want to like delve into my bank account to start taking money out so I just opened the iPad and there it was like here's your login details here's your bank account here's your betting account there's three thousand pounds in there you've got to play through it 50 times or whatever and then the money's yours and that was the beginning of the end really I mean that was the beginning of the, the last you know, episode that ended up like putting me in sort of the worst of positions, really. That's an appalling story, by the way. I don't want to get sidetracked by that, but that is just mm. horrific. It's literally like a drug dealer, isn't it? Like, <laughs> yeah, when you think about it, and obviously I was like, I knew, I knew none the better as well. I was just like, I wasn't in their headspace at that time to think about how outrageous that was. Mm. I mean, if it was now, I mean, I would have taken them to the cleaners. Don't get me wrong, but at the time, yeah, yeah. just. It's, it's that feels like a bit of a crass question, but it, it just, I guess it gives some context to how bad the problem was. Have you ever been able to put your finger on the sums of money you lost at that period of time, you know, or lost overall? Or is that even something you dare to think about? Yeah. Yeah. I put my finger on it. It's not something I tend to sort of share that much with people, but look, I mean, it's, you, know, you don't have to. You don't have to share it. You don't have. To no, share. I wouldn't. I wouldn't share. No, but I, you know, I'd say it's you know in the in the multiple six figures. Like it's not. We're not talking about a few thousand pounds here. You know, it was like in in six figures and and some. That's you know not as I said not money that I personally have ever generated for my own personal income. Wish I had. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about an extortionate amount of money in the grand scale of things. I think even to this day, uh, I've got a list tucked away of you know what I've lost and what I owe but it it wouldn't help me in any way to refer back to it too much because I believe I'll get there I, and by the way we're talking I think I'll be I even lose track I think I'll be eight or nine years clean nine years maybe mm, nine years and eight, I think the problem with gambling is it follow I mean look I, I can't speak for I, I've not had an alcohol or drug addiction so I'm sure that there's like all sorts of collateral that follows you around for years to come but the problem with gambling is it, it follows you around like a bad smell. Unfortunately, for me to get to a point where my financial health reflects my mental and physical health is a long way off. I want to get to that bit because I want to do you justice on that because I know mm. I know what you've done over those years with that debt and the responsibility you take on it. Let's get to, I'm trying to think when we met Gab and we met in a London hotel. Yeah, I talk about it to a lot of people when I when I speak about, you know, my journey to, to this point. What happened is everything was falling apart. I was fighting fires every single day. I was driving to the office in the morning. I couldn't go in the office because I defaulted on the rent on the office by so much. So I couldn't even go in there. So I'd park my car in my parking space near the office and I'd go to a nearby cafe 
just to feel like I was going to work and doing what I could do. And, and what I could do, what I was trying to do was just trying to salvage any clients that I could. And I was reaching out to people who I knew who came from money, who were like at the top of the industry contacts. I made a bit like, you know, I need help here. I've got, I've got a situation and, and, I, and I need help. And I was just hitting dead ends everywhere I went because the amount of money that I'd lost was so extortionate that everyone was like, look, you know, we've worked with you and you're great or whatever, but <laughs> we can't help you out of this situation. I was chasing for some money that we were owed on something which led a colleague of yours to say to me, I think probably because of the way in which I was chasing, because of the fact that you had the, the management arm of what you were doing, that, you know, we should chat. I think they could obviously tell there was a problem and suggest that we chat. And I, and I remember saying, look, I'd love to chat, but it's urgent and it's very confidential. And so they said, you know, Luke will come and meet you. And we met in the, in the Mayfair Hotel. And I remember thinking just before you came in, I, I must look like absolute, well, absolute shit. Because I was just, a, I was at such a low ebb, I think at that point, I felt so out of any form of hope. And I remember Googling you just before you came in and it said that you'd cited depression for the reason that you'd stepped away from cricket mm. and we got chatting and you said, I think that you were like, why don't you come and work with us? And I was like, look, there could be something there, but I've got a bit of a story to tell you. And I said, you know, I, I saw that you cited depression for leaving the sport. Can I ask you about that? And I think you said, yeah, I'm you know, four years clean of drugs and alcohol or alcohol. And I was like, I'm in. <laughs> I was like, I'm in, here we go. <laughs> I know that, that this isn't the reason why you've asked me to come on the podcast, but let it be said on record that I'm forever grateful for that moment. Sometimes the universe just conspires in a certain way and there was something that brought me and you together at, at that point. And to say that, like, I left thinking that an angel had been sent from above. And, and it was not just about money, you know, obviously not, because there was a long way to go beyond that conversation for us to get to any sort of form point where we could agree anything or come up with a plan or certainly for me to reach any form of financial parity. But just the hope, <laughs> to be honest with you, that I, that I left that conversation with, it was the game changer for me to be honest with you, because I could keep singing your praises, but, no, no, no. but one of the things no, no, that no, I would no, say no, is at no, that point, I, I you, think... said, <laughs> you said this is 50% business and 50% compassion. And it's very important that you, you must commit to your therapy as a result of this meeting. And, and I'll never forget, you know, all of those things you said to me at the time. And it's all the stuff that my mum would have wanted to hear <laughs> at that moment in time. <laughs> I knew I was in good hands. <laughs> no. Do you know what? The, the reason why um, it's important, because like I said at the start, Gab's not spoken publicly about his story. And obviously we're going to get to the point where he gets sentenced to, to jail. The reason I want to bring up when Gab and I met is I want to put some context around for him what led to the point where he was sentenced to jail. So when, when I met Gab and we had that meeting, Gab was, yeah, I could, tell was in a really not a great way in life but you were really honest you were really honest about the problems you were in you said straight away I've got a list of clients that I owe a lot of money to and I don't know what you know I don't know how I'm going to do it and we essentially went away and made a bit of an action plan as to how to repay them didn't we and we contacted them all and including in the end Greg Rutherford, who will get to your, you know, what happened in the end, but we we contacted them all to make a payment plan to pay everyone back. And we committed to that. And Gab, from day one of that, you know, for all of the difficulties that he'd got himself into, he was always honest about it to me. You know, he was always like, I am fucked here and I need help and I need to work my way out of it. And for me, I always looked at Gab going, well, guy who basically worked his way to be at the top of the tree is incredibly talented. He's just got himself into a mess, just like I'd got myself into a mess with booze once upon a time. But for the grace of God, go I is a, an important phrase to remember for recovering addicts, I think. Gab, you know, do you remember that time that led up to eventually the police contacting you and, and, it, and it escalating towards going to court. Yeah, I mean, from that point that I 
met you, I then went to to seek therapy, which I'd done. I'd done every type of therapy under the sun. I'd I'd gone through GAM care, done some one-on-one sessions with them. I did National Problem Gambling Clinic, did group therapy with them and one-on-one sessions with them. For whatever reason, nothing had stuck. My mum had, through a contact, found about a therapist, Martin. I hope he doesn't mind me name-checking him. But in the same way that, you know, I can say that you saved my life in so many ways, Martin did too. And so I sought therapy. I reference him as well because you talk about being honest. And I'll never forget when I sat down with Martin for the first time and he just said, right, go on, tell me the whole thing. And I said, you know, this, this, this. And anyway, then I came clean to my parents and, and he went, yeah, and you got honest. It was such a basic thing that he said, but it, it suddenly, like so much of my addiction story just sort of like unfolded in front of me because I realized it was just all about being honest and that, you know, through, through addiction and everything that came with it, I just created this web of mess through not being honest to people who I could be honest to, especially. And he said, you got honest. Yeah, that's it. And then many, many hours of therapy beyond that. I started, I guess, to build a support group around me in terms of Martin, yourself, my parents, who I was continually honest with through that point. And I think it was about 14 months later and we'd come to payment arrangements with most people because, again, it wasn't the sort of money that anyone had just to sort of pay overnight. Yeah, I got a call. I was sitting, I was living with my girlfriend at the time and working from home. And I was sitting at the kitchen table working. And by that point, I'd really got back into the routine of going to the gym every morning, then coming back home, working, doing whatever I could, make the situation better. I'd made a really good indent into, into the money that I said I was going to work back. And I got a call saying, hi, this is Bedfordshire Police. We've just had a gentleman come in and report you for theft. And we'd like you to come in for a voluntary interview. That was the beginning of that episode. And it felt a bit weird because I'd done so much work, even over that sort of 14 month period on every element, physical health, going to gym every morning, the work, just just so focused every day, the therapy. I guess the good thing at that point was I did have the support network to then call on and start to work out what the plan would be. I didn't have any money, so I had to seek legal aid and find contacts that I could who could point me in the right direction of who I could get to support and represent me without having to spend any money because I didn't have any. And yeah, eventually went to meet went to meet the lawyer and talk with them and go for an interview with the police. And I, I just want to quickly add on to this because it's important. One of my best friends he always, he always reminds me that all situations are about perspective, you know, what perspective you look at it from. And the people who'd lost money from Gab's behavior and decisions and at the height of his gambling addiction have every right and had every right to be angry and cross about that. That's for sure, no doubt. And I'm not at all trying to paint that in any other way. What I am trying to put some context around is what Gab was doing at that time to try and write everything. I was with him. I'm not making it up. I'm not trying to make a situation sound better than it was, but he was. And I remember when the police called you and went, you went for your interview, it almost started this uncontrollable chain of events, didn't it? And it was like one minute you were in being interviewed then, and it was like a runaway train that I guess we'd worked really hard to try and try and correct things, mm. no one more so than you, and you were fully committed, but suddenly it felt like next thing you know, you're in court. Yeah, I mean, the, the problem, I guess part of the problem that was that it involved a well-known individual and so that comes with all sorts of bias, fanfare, whatever else around it. People are entitled to feel how they want to feel. You know, even to this day, you know, I owe people money and I got myself into that position. And at the point of taking responsibility at, for it, I can only do what I can do, you know, at that point. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I did. And that's what I was doing at the time. People are entitled to respond how they want to. I guess at the same time, you would hope that they also, as hurt as they are or frustrated or upset or angry as they are, they try and deploy an element of judgment and reason around the decisions that they make. 
because, you know, I, I got taught all of the lessons I needed to get taught. I'd effectively lost anything that I did have. I had reached the point of no return where I knew that I had to fix myself. I'd taken myself to therapy. I understood how, you know, my physical health and mental health were intertwined and how important it was to maintain those. And I was working and doing nothing else but working yeah. <laughs> because to try and fix the financial element of it. And so, yeah, and all of a sudden then we were on this runaway train where, you know, I, I think, I mean, I was badly advised at the time legally. I was advised to give a no comment interview and, you know, I've been brought up in a way that, I think rightly so, where if someone knows better than you about something, then you should listen to them. And and the legal advice that I was given was to give to give no comment to everything that I was asked by the police. And and the reason for that was that everything was in black and white. I'd come clean to Greg and I and I'd explained what happened. And we, there were emails going back and forward between us where he said, you know, I'd I understand your position. You know, you can't be my agent. We can still discuss how we might be able to work together, but I need to understand what money's owed and whatever else. And I've been compliant with everything. I was in consultation with his accountants and, and everything else. So the reason I was advised to give no comment was because there's nothing, you could only like implicate yourself here because everything that's true is is in black and white and they've they've got all the emails and whatever else. So you're better off just saying no comment. So I went with what they advised and I felt so uncomfortable to the point I actually paused the interview, asked to pause the interview and they only sent a paralegal with me. And I was like, are you sure this is right? Because the guy was, it, it was very like, he, you know, he knew what he was doing. He was ebbing and flowing through the interview. And, you know, it was like, you know, the way I see it is that you just, you're just a guy who's fallen foul of a gambling addiction. You lost some money. You're trying to pay it back. And I'm there going, no comment. And I had got honest and I'd, I'd lived this, you know, life of honesty for the best part of a year and a half. And I'm sitting there saying no comment. And I had to stop and I'm like, you sure about this? Because mm. I just want to say it for what it is. And she's like, yes, you have to stick to the script and whatever. And then I got called in for another interview, you know, to, to clarify a few points where, again, I had to give no, no comment. And then they said the Crown Prosecution have got six months to charge you. And it was five months, one week later. And I was in the Rio Olympics, which was a big deal for me because on my recovery curve to be at a point where I was at an Olympic Games representing athletes and being healthy and doing runs on Copacabana Beach and networking with the right people. And, you know, I felt like I was on a really upward curve and I, and I got a, a thing saying that you've been charged and you've got to attend magistrates, I think, a couple of months later. We'd also kept most things under wraps up until that point. And I knew that the minute that that happened, that it would all become public as well. Because obviously the minute it goes to magistrate's court, then it all gets released publicly. And at that point, we really were on a train that there was there was no stopping anything. I just also want to add this context in. And I, I'm, I'm adding it in because I think it's fair to Gab. But I don't also want to add it in and it sound like I'm having a dig at anyone in particular because... Like I said, everything's about perspective. But the context is that mm. we did contact Greg's agent about repayment a year prior to this and were ignored. And when then Gab got contacted by the police, I reached out to them again myself. I was then contacted by the police to say that if I carried on, I would be intimidating a witness. So... Again, I, I know there's edge on me putting this context into this story, but I, hmm. Gab's never told his story publicly. And so you might, you know, click and read on a Daily Mail thing about how an agent fleeced an athlete out of a load of money. The, the reality is it's, that's not the whole story. He was doing his best. We were doing our best at that point, but it just, it got to the point then when you had your, your court case and I will never forget the day. I know exactly where I was. It was in Capital FM in Liverpool on the day that you went down, for want of a better phrase. And Adam Velasco is a mutual friend. He was in, in court with you. And I will never forget him calling me. And, and I answered the phone. I went, hello. And he goes, he's gone. That was all he said. He was in absolute shock. He's like, he's gone. He's gone. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what do you mean? What do you mean he's gone? Talk us through that, being in court and then hearing you've got a jail sentence. What, what did that feel like? 
I mean, yeah, if you don't mind, just as a precursor to that, in terms of context, I think it was actually, um, it was more than one payment plan that we offered, which Mm. were rejected. And actually, I was then contacted by his lawyers beyond that. And I was asked to fill out income and expenditure forms to show my exact cash position. And And I also offered a personal repayment plan entirely based on my finances, which they were then responsive to. And then I increased it a little bit. And we're not, we're talking derisory amounts in the grand scale of things, but honestly, what I could afford. And those were rejected as well. There was three or four times that the payment plans were rejected. And I tried to reach out to them again beyond that. And they just didn't reply to me. And that's why it was odd that it went quiet. And then the next thing was police call. So led me to being in court. I'd gone to magistrate's court. I pleaded guilty. I was advised to do because no, I pleaded not guilty to because the the charge was for theft, and theft is intent to deprive, and it was agreed that there was no intent to deprive, obviously because we'd had all of this conversation about repayment. So initially, I got told that the charge would just get thrown out, and several months later, it got changed to fraud by abusive position in charge. And when I got told that, I was like, okay, cool. Well, you know, we'll go and plead not guilty, right? Because I didn't know I was committing a crime. I was just gambling. And then before I knew it, someone was like, you know, you've probably committed a crime. And I'm like, shit. There were so many ways in which, being honest, I could have knowingly committed a crime. And people like Greg would never have known. I could have said, mate, your contract was for 60 grand and it was for 100 grand. And I would have found a way of covering it up and it's so weird in addiction as you'll probably completely understand is that you have this bizarre moral compass right where like i would never have dreamt of doing that it's not the person i am (laughs) yet at the same time i would just gamble away a shit ton of money that i then couldn't afford to repay so it got changed to fraud by suspicion charge and i and i said to the lawyers well it's just i just go and plead plead not guilty, right? Because I, I wouldn't know crime if it in my face. And they were like, yeah, but it's kind of done on like seven categories, I think. Were you in a position of charge? Yes. Did you use someone else's money in a way that they wouldn't have deemed appropriate? Yes. If you were in a rational sense of mind, would you have used the money in that way? Okay, but I wasn't in a rational sense of mind. Okay, but if you were, which is where the law starts to become ridiculous. And I'm like, uh, well, yeah, okay. All right, so bam, 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 one, two, three, four, seven. If you go to court and you go to trial, which you will, if you plead not guilty, you will get found guilty by definition and you will get a minimum three-year custodial sentence. And my heart just dropped through my chest because this was the first point. And this was a week before the trial or, or the court date because it it gone to Crown Court because the amount of money that it was, if it's over a certain amount, it has to be referred to Crown Court. And I was like, my God, I can't go to jail. What are we talking about here? And also it didn't, it felt crazy because I'd been clean for like 16 months by that point or whatever it is. And so uh, I got told, look, you're not going to go to jail. You've got no previous. You've got by that point character references from this person with an MBE and that person with a knighthood and this gambler who you've been helping and this therapist and whatever else. It's been agreed between the parties that you didn't set out to commit a crime so what you need to do is you need to go plead guilty because it's minimum custody of three years. If you plead guilty, it gets reduced by a third, I think, yeah, to two years. And then the judge can suspend a sentence if it's two years and under. So you go plead guilty, it gets reduced down because just for the plea, it gets reduced down by a third, by a third to two years. And then the judge can suspend it because they're not allowed to suspend anything over two years. And they'll suspend it on the grounds of, as I said, all this previous. Also, You have to try between the time that you plead guilty and the sentencing a month later, you have to repay him back as much money as you possibly can because that amount will impact the sentencing. And by the way, suspended means you might do community service. You might not, but you won't go to jail. And so they said, you've got to repay back as much as you can. And I think we sort of said, well, that's mental because we spent several months and even years attempting to repay we were rejected every time all the while all of the other people who i'd owed money to were being repaid some of them in full by that point and then at the point where we tried to reinforce that we wanted to repay you were told you're not allowed to uh, involve yourself in a criminal investigation 
So that's the main reason why we haven't even tried to repay anything for the last year because we were told off by the police. Okay, well, you know, you've got to try and pay as much as you can. So my parents reached out to people, sought help, trust funds. I don't even know, to be honest. And the repayment was in full. I think it was something like £58,000 in full because I got told that that will save you from going to jail. So I go to court on that day. And for all of these reasons that I was told, I didn't take a spare pair of contact lenses. I didn't sort anything out with my girlfriend. I didn't sort anything out with my flat, with my car. I didn't take a spare change of clothes. I organized meeting people in the pub afterwards. The judge started. I had this new barrister who genuinely, she start, I felt like she started looking through the papers the night before. There were various claims that were made in the witness impact statement, which I believe could be proved on to this day, but weren't looked at properly until that morning. We went into the, to the court and, and the judge started talking. And, and I remember just wanting to shout out because he was saying stuff like, I recognize that you've paid off this money, but you can't buy your way out of jail. And I remember, you know, that, that, that was so factually incorrect. And then he said, I can't understand why you were so honest about everything, but then you refused to help the police in their investigations by giving no comment interviews. And all of this was just unfolding in front of my eyes and I was just heating up and wanted to shout out. But again, I was told that, you know, the barrister was there to represent me. And But to be honest, like as much as I felt like I obviously would have done a much better job for my, representing myself at the time, it was obviously over before it even started because the minute that they, the barrister finished saying what they're saying, he just pulled out this pre-written script. And, you know, I think the judge saw his name in lights because you had the press there and, and whatever else. And the law is an ass. I thought I was going to be leaving that way. And instead I had to go that way, <laughs> literally down into the, into the cells. Also, because the way that he sort of announced it all, I was kind of like, have I, is he, have I just, have I got, have I got a prison sentence? You know, it was just really like, have I really heard that right? And everything was just thrown into, into madness. And, uh, and yeah, I got led down, you know, and I said to the guy, mate, you don't need to handcuff me, mate. Like, honestly, come on. But he was like, you know, I'm really sorry I've got to and whatever. And I just, yeah, I just sat in this stony compartment of a undercourt cell for, what felt like days you had to wait until the court finished before they then took everyone to jail and uh yeah i kind of sat there just with my own thoughts and nothing else for i don't know four or five six hours and then just thinking like what on earth has happened it was ridiculous you know don't get me wrong like jail is good for certain people but i was so well into my recovery I had a, my therapist report for the judge said that there was significantly more chance of me reoffending in terms of gambling again if I went into jail than there was if I if I didn't and I continued with my therapy, but that was just completely glazed over. I couldn't make any sense of it at all, to be honest with you. I just couldn't make sense yeah. of of it, and and I and I wasn't expecting it, and I hadn't sought any advice as to what to expect or what to do or. Or anything. <laughs> and then, listen, you, you ended up serving, am I right in thinking, nine months in jail? So it was an 18-month sentence. So you serve half as standard for anything under so certain amount of years. So you serve nine. And I did four and a half months inside and four and a half months on tag. Yeah. And all of that story, you're still a bet-free man. As you said, your recovery continued. Life mm. still is a serious challenge in lots of ways, but you are healthy, happy, and you've still scrapping away. Is that fair to say? <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, jail was ridiculous. And the reason is, is there was no benefit to me being in there. I mean, the whole jail system is corrupt and broken and, and messed up in so many ways anyway, even for the people who need it. There were times in my life and certainly through my gambling journey where jail probably would have been really very good for me at points that I needed an intervention. But that certainly wasn't, that time was not that time for me. It was mm. utterly pointless. Me sitting there twiddling my thumbs for four and a half months, 
not being able to help the people that I was helping on their gambling journeys at that point, not being able to repay the people that I was repaying at that point, not being able to seek the therapy that I was seeking and coming out with a significantly more difficult financial challenge ahead of me in terms of generating income to be able to repay the people that I, that I owed. So it was pointless. But I thought that all of the work that I'd done before was setting me up for the opportunity that not going to jail would give me. But what, it, what that did was save me in jail. The first morning that I woke up or, I mean, I'd hardly slept and I was in this, again, stony cell with another guy who had come in in the middle of the night and I'd hardly slept through the night and I I woke up and I had my analog watch on that I'd worn to court and I was like, I can't change what I've been doing. So I went into the little alcove where the where the toilet and shower were and and I put my watch up on a ledge so that the light that was coming through the window could catch it and I was like right 5k Regents Park let's go <laughs> and I just thought four minutes per kilometer five kilometers I'm gonna jog on the spot for 20 minutes do my 5k and I ran on the spot and did my 5k in my head and then a little body resistance circuit around the cell and I did that every single day for my entire sentence and I also started like writing my whole story down from that morning again just that positive habits I'm a creature of habit obviously and I wanted to instill positive habits throughout my time there so I wrote 131,000 words of a book (laughs) you know while I was inside and I employed the things that had helped me to get to that point to get me on And, and I guess the overriding thing which I employ every single day of my life now as I did then is just the concept of one day at a time and I don't cite jail as the darkest, as my darkest point, not by any means, because it was just a waste of time and I got through it. I cite the the times before that when I can picture myself in a dark room having not slept all night and not eaten in two days and gambled throughout the night and whatever else and face all the fires the next day. I cite those as my darkest points. And I can't tell you how I got from there to here other than I did it one day at a time. And that's how I got through my jail sentence. And that's how I take on the challenges that my past give me every single day at the moment, one day at a time. And so, yeah, I'm very, very, very grateful to be clean. I'm grateful to, you know, have the support, especially in in the form of my family that I have around me still to this day. I'm grateful for the person that it's that I am now as a result of the things that I've been through. I wouldn't go through jail again because of the impact that it had on the people around me mm-hmm. and the, the the pain that it caused them. But in terms of the impact that it's had on elements of me and the person it's made me, then I'll take it as a, mm. another sort of growing experience, I guess. Yeah, amazing. Fraser, I'm just going to invite you in. You've obviously listened the whole way through this. You got any questions for Gab? I've just, I've enjoyed just sitting back and, having a bit of a front row seat to it it's, <laughs> I would I wouldn't know where I wouldn't know where to start honestly after the back of it but there was a couple of like we we've, we've talked about our addictions and you know we both identify as an addict and alcoholic myself and Luke there was a bit I written down at the beginning that that I was just thinking of the kind of pattern that my drinking and so many others had was your gambling started off as social mm. and eventually you talk about it being behind closed doors, locked key on your phone and hidden away. I really identified with that because my drinking started out as social, fun, around people out there and then got darker and darker and less social and more alone and hidden and secretive. The other bit that I was I was looking at was um, you talked about that night out in Beijing with, with Lewis, mm. how you were on that night and you know, you're out and charismatic and talking and out till seven in the morning. And then hearing like 48 hours before is when you came clean to your parents. How good did you become at pushing that down? And and the other question, the last one was in terms of therapy, did you, with me, I was drinking to escape. There was something underneath pain that I was trying to get away from. I know you were trying to win money back, but were you doing that as well? Was there something underneath that you were trying to get away from that gambling gave you? Or is it just about getting the money and winning it back? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. 
so in terms of the pushing everything down, I mean, I don't know. I, I kind of, I just live these two completely different lives mm. often, especially because the industry that, that we work in, it was all about being on show, I guess. And there are, I guess there are other industries where you can be more of a recluse than you can in management where you're supposed to be out there speaking to people, networking or whatever else. And I often felt this feeling of the minute I walk out the door, like no one can know that anything is going on. And I, it would just be this front. I mean, thankfully in Beijing, mm. that was the that was the beginning of like that mini recovery. So I guess I wasn't gambling, you know, when I was over there and whatever else, but I was certainly not sharing the stuff I was dealing with behind the scenes. But yeah, a lot of the time I used to go, I used to get to the office when I worked in Angel and I used to, I, you remember these weird things, I used to like look in the mirror and I used to say to myself, you're dead behind the eyes. Because I'd look at myself in the mirror and I'd look normal, <laughs> but I'd know that behind it all, it was just, I was gone. I remember looking in the mirror during some of my darkest times and, and having this phrase in my head, looking at my eyes going, they're going to find out, they're going to find out who you are. They're going to find yeah. out. And it's that, mm. I guess, that moment where you're in a time in which you're basically incredibly dishonest is like a moment of mm. rare honesty with yourself when you're looking in the mirror. Yeah, it was hard. I, 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 don't, I don't know what my honest self was, you know, at the same time, because I knew that everything was destructive. I knew that I, if I got more money, I'd probably lose it and, you know, whatever else. But I was just so, so lost in it all. You know, and that's self-awareness, right? That's what this is. That's what it all comes down to. That kind of brings me on to the other question when you say about what, like, with the therapy, whether I looked at what it was that I was suppressing, where it come from. For me, there wasn't necessarily, uh, you know, I had this drastic thing. I mean, I, I was bullied at school, not to the extent of some other stories that I hear, but I definitely, you know, wasn't the most popular kid in social situations I'm one of those people who's very good at like knowing everyone but not necessarily getting really close with a group so there's all sorts of things that you could pick from from a very young age I had real real confidence issues around what I wear would spend hours upon hours upon hours changing my clothes like to the point that I was supposed to go on a night out and I just wouldn't go because I couldn't I couldn't physically leave the house feeling comfortable enough in, in how I looked. Yeah, I, obviously through therapy, I tried to pick a lot of that apart. I wouldn't necessarily say there was any like particular theme that was like, that's what it mm. is. But that's all, I guess, the journey of self-awareness, right? And just understanding all of the elements that make you and understanding what parts of that might have meant that you felt comfort and sought comfort in gambling and hiding yourself away and, and whatever else. Mm -hmm. So there are very, various elements of whether it be my upbringing. You know, I had a, I had a really good upbringing. I couldn't fault my parents in, in any way in the way that they brought me up. But sometimes it's with the sum of our parts and it's just the elements of everything that made me led me to that point. But what, what therapy allowed me to do was just understand myself better, understand those things that are a part of me and also make me aware of my behaviors. And, and that serves me so well today because I refer to it all the time. I refer to it in the way that I go about my daily life. I refer to it in the way that I try and help people with their problems, whether that be addiction related or not, just the overriding concept of self-awareness and, and, and delving into your own behaviors and why you do the things you do. That's what's served me, I guess, so well to this point. And what do you say when you look in the mirror now? Uh, you're not dead behind the eyes. You're still, you're, you're still broke. You don't really care that much what you wear anymore. I mean, that's about it, to be honest with you. But I constantly count my blessings, despite all of the troubles that I continue to face as a result of the financial hole that I, that I created. Mm. I always try and bring it back to like, okay, but you're healthy in your mind and in your body and, and just take that and, and move mm -hmm. on from that benchmark. Do you know what, Fraser? I think that's a great question for us to finish on. Gab, I know that our journeys are not separate. And as people have listened today, our stories intertwine. 
but I'm incredibly proud of you. I'm really pleased that on this podcast, we've allowed your story to be told in a bit more context than maybe it has done in the past. And I think for anyone listening who's struggling with addiction and particularly gambling addiction, please use Gab's story as a real inspiration. I appreciate it. Look, it's, it's for me, when you asked me to do it, it's like, it's just another option for some free therapy, to be honest with you. You know, you, you can't not reinforce all of it. You, you have to, you know, for, for yourself. And that's why I'd love to help others. And hopefully if, I don't know if you tag or whatever else, but I'd, anyone who's, if this is anything that I've said has resonated with any of the thoughts or the feelings and experiences I go with, like, I'd love to help them just because, if I'm being selfish, it's good for me, for my recovery, but also like if nothing else, if what I've been through can can help some other people, I'm not saying like not go through what I went through, but just navigate their way through everything that's going on, then, um, you know, obviously I'd love to. Thank you, Gab. And uh, to everybody, thanks for listening to the Understanding Men podcast once again. You can find us on all major social platforms, including Spotify, YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. And as ever, we'll be promoting every episode via our own personal social media. Please come and find us. We want this podcast to be as interactive as possible. So comment, message us, tell us what you want us to talk about. And if you've liked what you've heard, then please go ahead and hit the follow button so you never miss an episode. Lastly, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, then please leave us a review and obviously a five-star rating would be lovely. Thank you and goodbye for now. Goodbye.